Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. On today's episode, we're going to be diving into the history and evolution of the FBI's tactical training unit. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, here we are, episode 78 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. We normally don't use the episode numbers uh, when we list these things, so uh, 78 is where we're at right now, and man, I couldn't be more honored and excited to have today's guest with me. Uh, Before I introduce him, though, if you are new to the podcast or if you're a returning listener and you haven't subscribed yet, don't take my word for it. Make sure to listen to this episode and make sure that you're finding it actionable and relevant to you, and if you are consider subscribing to the podcast and if you're even more jazzed about what you got for information today maybe even consider leaving a five-star review that would be phenomenal it would really help us out but uh i'm really excited about the way this podcast has been going out lately Um, we're getting some phenomenal feedback i'm getting some emails and text messages and dms from people all around the world um and uh, it truly truly i appreciate it from the bottom of my heart and uh, i know the team here at ilet Really appreciates all the kind words that you guys are throwing out there, so thank you for that. All right, so let's talk about today's episode. My guest today is none other than Mr. Rob Chadwick. Rob is the former unit chief of the FBI's tactical training unit out of Quantico. Uh, He's just a phenomenal instructor. He's been in the game a very long time, Uh, recently retired, so we finally had the opportunity to sit down and chat without any red tape, and I think I prefaced that at the beginning of this episode. And uh, just a phenomenal conversation we had today about his background, how the tactical training unit has evolved over time, what those tactical instructors for the FBI do, and and we just dive into the the training conversation really heavy. So if you're an instructor, this episode is going to be for you. So let's get after it and jump into this episode with Rob. Here we go. Hey everyone, Adam Kanaka here with the ILET Network, another episode here of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Sitting with me today, Rob Chadwick. Um, Rob, brother, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me, man. Hey, thanks, Adam. It's a real thrill to be here. A big fan of the podcast. Been listening to you for a while and you've had some really big names in the industry and just uh, honored to be asked to be part of that long line. Well, thanks, brother. I really appreciate that. And, and, and you know, names are great, but information and knowledge is better, right? I think mm-hmm. that's that's the key to this. Um, and so if you're if you're listening to this um, and you're not seeing it live here on the screen, uh, Rob is the former head of the FBI's tactical training program and uh, just recently retired uh, here. Uh, so congratulations on that, brother. And, you know, it's funny we had to um, we had to delay the recording of this um, until now so that there weren't as many strings attached and we could have an open and honest discussion about, you know, what's currently happening in training, um, you know, not just with the Bureau, but from, uh, you know, across the board. Um, I know we want to talk a bit about, you know, the tactical training unit that you were, that you ran and, and were a part of for a long time. And there's a lot of really cool, interesting things that I think we're going to get into here. So before we jump into all of that, can I just, uh, I'm going to give you a second to just kind of give everyone your background and, and just share where you're coming from. Sure. Thanks. Uh, so I just retired at the end of October 2021 uh, after 28 years in law enforcement. Uh, started my career as a patrolman with Fairfax County, Virginia uh, Police Department. It's a suburb of Washington, D.C. Absolutely uh, the thrill uh, of, a, of a, my life at the time. 
uh, grew up in Fairfax County and, and admired that department. It's still one of the preeminent uh, law enforcement agencies, I believe, um, in the country. And um, just had a great time doing that. I was fortunate enough to get my dream job as a canine handler uh, fairly early in my career there. And, um, and then got the call for the FBI after about seven and a half years. Um, reported the Bureau. I went through, obviously, Quantico and uh, got my 38th choice in field offices. <laughs> uh, reported to the Miami division. Uh, this is all before September 11th. So I was working uh, narcotics and just having an amazing time. Uh, September 11th happened and, you know, the Bureau declared victory on the war on drugs and uh, moved on to national security. Right. And um, spent some time, came back to D.C. headquarters and then was fortunate enough to get selected to go down to Columbia, South Carolina, uh, where I spent the bulk of my career uh, running the training program, firearms and tactics training down there. Uh, and then when uh, Bill Barr became the attorney general of the United States, I went up and helped uh, run his full-time protection detail. Incredible experience there. Um, it became apparent that... Uh, uh, Mr. Barr probably was not going to come back regardless of the election. And you know, he just, like I said, cannot say enough positive things about working for that guy uh, personally. And uh, so he was kind enough to, to kind of let me know that he was looking at probably leaving. So I started looking around because I knew it was never going to be as good as that. I thought I was going to end my career with the protection detail up there. Um, for those that, that aren't aware, the FBI <coughs> runs the... Um, protection details for the United States Attorney General and the uh, director of the FBI, uh, sort of like the Secret Service does for several of the other cabinet members. But um, anyway, um, I was fortunate enough to get selected for my, my absolute dream job, which was the tactical training unit chief uh, slot at Quantico. So I was able to finish my career where I started, you know, out right at Hogan's Alley and uh, walked out the same doors I walked in as a brand new agent. It was pretty surreal. That trip down 95 uh, was, was, a, was a weird one. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so um, been out for a couple months now and getting used to not having, uh, you know, the, the bureau phone on the, on the uh, nightstand. And, uh, but, you know, you and I've been talking for a while now and, and I've, I've seen your program as, a, as an opportunity to really highlight some of the really cool stuff we were doing uh, while I was there, uh, and, and certainly before I got there and, and will continue hopefully long after. Uh, but, um, you know, working for the Bureau was fantastic. Loved every second of it. Uh, but our problem is you and I were kind of talking offline was, was getting permission to talk. And, you know, I'm certainly not going to badmouth anything about the FBI. The only thing I will say, uh, is that we notoriously, we, the, the Bureau, um, has really not done a great job of talking about the positive things, right? We, we just don't do a great job of uh, taking advantage of those things that we do that are positive. We've taken a beating in the press and deservedly so over a lot of things, but um, you know, uh, our, our sort of proactive, <coughs> excuse me, um, I guess proactive press uh, stance hasn't been always the, the strongest. Yeah, you know, it's we did talk a bit offline there and and you know, this is this is a situation that I've talked about for 
since we've been doing this podcast and, and we've been doing anything with ILED is um, it seems like a lot of the three letter agencies, doesn't matter which one you pick um, or any federal entity or uh, bureaucratic agency, the it's like this, they're my toys. I don't want to share them, right? Like get out of my sandbox. Um, and that's just kind of a universal almost across the board is that red tape. And actually it's really funny. If you go back to the very first episode I did on tactical breakdown, I was like, I literally recorded it in my basement. Um, and in, in that kind of mission statement, you could call it. Um, I basically said like the whole purpose of this is to break through red tape when it comes to training and information. And it's, <laughs> How do we get experts on that can share their knowledge and information that's relevant to boots on the ground right now? Because that's that the name, the name of the game is that like, that's what we're here doing. And that's, I know that's your passion and that's why you and I connected almost immediately um, with, with mission and values and things like that, because, you know, like you had said, there's a lot of stuff that they're doing in Quantico right now. There's a lot of stuff that the, the Bureau has been leading the way on for a long time and it's just not out there. People don't, People aren't aware of it. And part of it is because, I mean, there's a poor, poor campaign into getting it out to agencies, but also part of it is sometimes there is that red tape where people are like, ah, well, we can't share that because of X, Y, or Z, or because, you know, I, uh, I, you know, that agency is ran by Bob and Bob and I, you know, Bob brought me a cold coffee six years ago at a conference. So I don't talk to him anymore. Whatever the, whatever the issue is. It's just, it seems to always be there. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you because we can, we can open that can up a little bit um, and, and pick your brain and let you just share some of the, the innovative things that are happening right now. So where do you want to start? Do you want to start talking about what's going on at Quantico? Do you want to start talking about the, the tactical training unit and that program and how instructors are developed? Where, where do you want to kick this thing off? Yeah. You know, I thought it might be um, interesting for your listeners to kind of take a step back and understand the bureau's um, sort of setup and um, what it what it takes or what what the prerequisites are for an FBI agent to then become a certified tactical instructor and then go out and and provide training. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize uh, that the bureau is one of our major functions and missions is training and support. You know, everybody thinks of the, I always kind of, I actually used to open my, uh, a lot of my uh, uh, law enforcement training classes, kind of quoting that scene. And, and it, I, I feel like I'm getting old now because a lot of kids these days don't remember the movie Die Hard where, you know, the lieutenant is is handling the crisis and all hell's breaking loose at the top of this building. And then the two guys in the black suits show up from the FBI, right? And and uh, the guy introduces himself. Hey, I'm Lieutenant Johnson from uh, LAPD and I'm in charge. And of course, the joke was that the bureau guy just says, not anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's we and my my unit at Quantico, uh, the tactical training unit, our primary function, our bread and butter was providing training for our state, local, tribal, other federal agency and international police partners that's what we did every single day. We had, we had guys and girls, uh, on the road around the world every day doing, uh, and our, our, I guess our flagship program is called let's L E T S S, which stands for law enforcement training for safety and survival. Uh, that program has had a bunch of different iterations as you could imagine been around since the early nineties, I think 92, 93. 
some real, you know, giants in the in the field started it and then carried it on. And, and I was um, fortunate enough to inherit that program. Um, I had so just a personal background. I have been a tactical instructor for the FBI for a lot of years, the, the bulk of my career. It is without question the best part of of my entire law enforcement career I've, I've i've been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to train with literally thousands of officers at you know every level around the world and almost every experience was the same anywhere you go uh you know it's the first day you know the little bit of the the butt sniffing and the posturing and you kind of figure out who knows what and and by the end of the second day you're 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 having a good time and you're going out afterwards and you're having a a soda, uh, maybe breaking bread together. And by the end of the week, you're lifelong friends. I still talk to guys that I've trained with, you know, a decade and a half ago, um, just because of that common bond of training. And it's just so rewarding, uh, because I, I was shocked, you know, I was, I was a little bit spoiled. I mentioned Fairfax County police, you know, great department. Uh, it's a very affluent section of Northern Virginia. And, you know, I always, just assumed that all police had the same resources as as this giant, uh, well-funded, uh, well-regarded department, and, and certainly not the case. Um, so for the FBI to be able to go out and put on a really uh, quality product where some of these officers were shooting more in three or four days than they had in, in 20 years combined. Uh, of course, we would pay for everything, right? We, <laughs> excuse me. We would pay for all the ammo, all the targets, everything. You know, there was no cost other than the time of attendance, uh, which, of course, is you know considerable for a lot of departments. You know, especially these days, um, it is tough to get someone uh, to break free for three, four, five days in a row to come to some training. Um, which brings me to, I guess, my first point. The original Let's lineup was a four-day course, three three and a half-day course. We would we the formula was we would roll into town on a Monday, <clears throat> set up, do range uh, configuration, all that kind of stuff, and then train Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and part of Friday. And um, that was cumbersome uh, for a lot of departments to do, especially the ones that really needed the training, the smaller departments with with not a lot of funding. So, so we tried a pilot program that basically broke those days down into two-day training iterations, right? So two two-day courses. One, it would literally double the number of officers that we could interact with, and two, it would it would minimize the uh, uh, downtime from their departments. So, you know, we'd roll into you know anywhere USA, and instead of having twenty-five officers come through, we could get fifty. Um, and then double the number of, uh, of officers impacted by that training. Uh, super well received thus far. We started to play with the formula a little bit, you know, based on um, some of the uh, uh, feedback we were getting from around the field in terms of, hey, what what is really resonating with the officers? And, you know, obviously over the years since the 90s, tweaked what we were doing. And we could talk a lot more about that if you want. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a phenomenal program. I mean, I obviously haven't had the opportunity to go through it myself, um, especially being a Canadian. I get to do a lot of U.S.-based training, um, but uh, it is few and far between. Thanks, especially thanks to old Uncle COVID here. Um, yeah. Travel slightly less accessible. 
Yeah. Um, this year, hopefully, we'll be down there quite a bit more this year, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, cool. Well, I, I know the guys would love to have you at least come look at one of these things. And Yeah, uh, well, I, I mean, I'd love to, right? We The the whole purpose of, of these programs that you have is to get training to officers. And again, like, I don't know, it's like, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse at this point, yeah. but I, I, it's, I don't know why people haven't picked up on this idea. Like, let's just make training accessible. And as long as it's actionable, relevant, useful, right? And it's based off of scientific principles and it's defensible. Let's take that training and let's put that out to as many people as humanly possible. Why can't we? Right. And, and let's stop all the infighting and all that BS and say, just get the training out there, right? Right. Put, put all your differences aside for a minute and train your freaking officers. Yeah. Well, I was excited. You and I were talking offline about some of the things you guys have in the pipeline from the technology standpoint. There's, I mean, it's just so different than when I was coming up. You know, we literally would receive a VHS tape in the mail and, and play it for, for the roll call. And now you can sit in your cruiser and stream 4K video, right? Almost interactive stuff. So that's something that I'm glad to see you guys are taking advantage of. We were starting to do that. Um, believe it or not, at, so, so at Quantico, uh, you know, we didn't have any off-the-shelf video reference for our students to look at in terms of whether it was CQB or felony car stop, everything was old diagrams and, you know, pictograms. And so we just, you know, grabbed a camera and uh, did it ourselves, filmed it ourselves. And then of course the guys across the street, the video unit, like, what, what are you guys doing? We, we were professionals. So they jumped in on it and, and produced some real high quality stuff that, you know, you, you got five extra minutes you know, pull it up on your phone and look at, okay, this is how you do uh, a corner fed room entry, or this is how you do a two man, uh, you know, clear in a hallway, whatever it is, just that visual representation. And of course you can scrub it back and forth and see the, the fine movements. Uh, and it just really has, has been a game changer for our students uh, because we would send a lot of that video uh, homework out ahead. Hey, look, watch these videos so that you're up to speed so that we don't have to spend time training you on how do you do room entry? How do you do, you know, whatever it is. That's a that's a very interesting point. I've been saying this for years. I don't know why DL components aren't a part of all training platforms. And and more so for especially those really like academic heavy yeah. concepts, yeah. right? send that package out two months in advance and let yeah. them go through it whenever they have time. And by the time they get to you, you can maximize your time on the range or on the mats and then, and then touch and then have touch points of all those academic components. But right. now you interleave the two and it creates for better training. Yes, right. That's exactly right. And well, I'll tell you my, you know, my humble opinion is, is because you had dinosaurs like me, in charge of running training that didn't come up in the digital age, aren't used to the phenomenal technology. Uh, I mean, it took me an hour to set up this webcam and, <laughs> so, and it, you know, when, we, when you and I started, it was, I think it was pointing up my nose. So, you know, uh, but it's coming with, you know, younger guys like you that are you're fully uh, immersed in that technology. I think it's just going to revolutionize training. And of course that's not even touching on some of the, uh, virtual reality stuff that's coming down the pike. Um, you know, when I was at Quantico, had an opportunity to look at several of the different platforms that are up and coming in the VR world. 
Uh, there's a Canadian company that that I looked at. Chimera. Um, yeah. Chimera XR. Yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, those guys. Um, yeah, I know them very, very well. Yeah, yeah cool. Really Taylor. Cool. Taylor McCullough, Taylor, yeah. right? Taylor yeah, McCullough, yeah, yeah, good dude. And former, so, former Canadian Forces member. Very solid. I, I actually invited them to come demo what they had and 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 put some of my guys that uh, are doing sort of the next generation training. Um, I don't think the VR stuff is quite there yet, but it's super close. The, and yeah, the, and this is, you know, obviously I have the opportunity to work with some of the top companies and manufacturers and training in the world. And so there's, there is the big thing right now. Um, I, I agree with you. I don't think VR is there yet. Right. We'll get there. Um, yeah. But as it stands, the still the major, the major drawback. And especially when I talk to, uh, to get shooters, to operators and stuff like that is the the discrepancy on uh sight picture with goggles versus yeah with, yeah, yeah you know yeah, the the yeah. tactile feedback mm-hmm. um where if you were to take the goggles off and you have your sight picture lined up your 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 hands aren't in the right spot um yeah. and so if you continue to 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 rep that over and over and over and over again and and for what you did and the guys that you trained that that muscle memory and i say that with my quotation fingers because everybody here list knows how many times we've talked about muscle memory. Um, that's an issue, mm-hmm. right? So there, I don't think it's there yet. Will it get there? Definitely. Like obviously yeah. technology is going on this hockey curve of a, yeah. uh, a trajectory. So excited for that. But, yeah. um, but you're right. There's a lot of things that are accessible now because of technology and for agencies that aren't taking advantage of that, that are just like those, you know, stuck in the mud dinosaur types. Um, not you're not that anymore. Cause look at it, look at you now. Um, up on podcasts and everything. <laughs> we uh it, 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 and listen, I say that w- with complete humility because if you like, for example, I'm gonna be down at Ilita um <coughs> in St. Louis here in March. Um, when I present. I literally have, I'm like, I have, I, I use the old fucking Dave Grossman model. I got a, a, a paper and markers and I tape those up onto the wall. I'm just, a, I'm a, I'm a pen and paper type of person. I hate yeah. PowerPoints. I hate that kind of shit. Um, so I'm the complete opposite when I train, if I'm not doing something for ILET or mm-hmm. tactical breakdown on the computer, I'm yeah. literally pen and paper, you know, in the, in the mud kind of person. That's how I teach. Yeah. Um, but the just the accessibility that's allowed with technology right now needs to be taken advantage of and i will i will um add to that point a little caveat and that is there are some chiefs right now um that are leaning too heavily onto the technology side and they're saying wow we can accomplish all of our training online. Sure, yeah, right. And yep. you're going, well, time yeah. out. Like there, there's right. there's a time and place to yeah. utilize certain components. You're never going to fully replace in-person training, and we don't want that. Right. What we right. want to do is take advantage of everything we can with the technology. But at the end of the day, there are a handful of skill sets that need to be practiced and trained viscerally where you're down there and you're actually doing it. And and if you're not, you're doing your officers a disservice. So just a little caveat to that conversation, but I think you're, you're bang on with all those points. I tell you, you know, you talk about the, the chiefs and the executive management. Um, one of the things that I was really excited about, and again, there's kind of cutting edge technology from a training standpoint, 
some of that stuff that the uh, those companies um, like Taylor's and whoever else is involved in the field, we were really excited about the uh, applicability of the um, technology to measure cognitive load under stress, right? From from a selection standpoint, right? So think about the elite units like at Quantico, for example, HRT, or even let's say uh, at the field office level, uh, uh, the SWAT operator, right? There's still considerable amount of time and uh, thereby money and um, devoted to selecting people. And, and of course, you know, the old SWAT, uh, you know, special teams type of selection process is so heavy on the physical attributes, right? Which are super important. But um, and I'll get into kind of giving credit where all this came from. Yeah, I didn't think it up. But, uh, you know, if you could test someone um, on the front end, right, put a helmet on their head and then and then give them some complex tasks to uh, handle under stress. Right. You somehow introduce a stressor and then you realize this person is incapable of functioning at the level we need them to do. Uh, versus, hey, this guy can go out and run a five-minute mile, mile after mile after mile. He can do 25 weighted pull-ups. He can shoot the lights out. But but if you get through all that training, and of course, the higher-level teams, the more and more training you've already expended in time and money and resources, if this person can't handle that you know, complex task analysis under stress, you've wasted your money, right? Uh, we could train anybody to do pull-ups and sit-ups and push-ups, right? And if they're not willing to do it, then you know, we're wasting our time. What we can't do is train their brain to be able to handle um, that. That That's the intangible and, and up to now immeasurable until, it, you know, until it was too late or we've expended such great rate. And I'm, I'm thinking about not just for the elite teams like HRT and the, and the and the military units that do that kind of training. I'm thinking about for new agent hiring, new officer hiring, right? You can get this physical uh, specimen in there who looks the part and can and can handle everything, but can't handle stress. And you know you you've got a you've got a non-functioning officer or, or agent, so. You know, to be able to to test that on the front end, I think is pretty exciting. I think that I think you're going to see that as a component um, in the next few years, just from a just from a cost saving standpoint, right? Yeah, that that human factors perspective is. I mean, you you know how much work we do with for science and and right. groups like Virtra and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to again, you get so much. There's so much available feedback methods now um that we can you can take somebody um and this is something that we've discussed with with some some partners and stuff like that but imagine throwing somebody that you have no like you don't have time i have like maybe you have an hour with somebody okay great like what am i supposed to do with an hour right mm -hmm. but you put somebody in a simulator and the idea is to you like say i put somebody in a simulator and i put a heart rate monitor on them Mm -hmm. Right. And now mm -hmm. all I'm going to do is literally have them go through a series of things, have them go through some standard shoots just on targets and then go through maybe a scenario or two um, or some shoot, no shoots or something. Mm -hmm. But have, like have a have them in the simulator by themselves with a room full of um, peers behind them. Right. Watching them, you know, 
the funny thing is if you take their baseline and then you put them up there where they're now with the one performing, you're mm-hmm. going to see that heart rate go up. Sure. Right. You're going to, you're going to see all these things. And then the perp and the purpose of the whole simulator and everything, because a lot of people think when you talk about simulator training, well, we're going to talk about the results in the simulator. You're going to, re- you're going to talk about the results on the range. You're going to talk about the results in the training and in the mat room. What we are going to talk about is we're going to flip the script and say, Cool. Whatever you shot, I don't care what you shot, what you did. That wasn't important. Let's talk about why your heart rate went up. Right. Let's right. talk about let's talk about the correlation between now those re, the reaction time on what you did with your heart rate and how all of that works, and then how it correlates to all of your peers and have those discussions. You can you can facilitate a lot more training that's going to bury home in that person's brain, and they go, "Oh shit, I never thought of that before." Yeah, right. Even if somebody walk away from training thinking about or questioning something that they did, uh, that's a good day for me. I right? love it. Yeah, that, that's a because they go, "Oh wow, I never thought of that before." Oh that that never that never got brought up in training. Right. Right. Yeah, that's we, right. We talk about stress. You know, we talk about stress inoculation. Right, which I don't believe it exists or not, but stress exposure training, we have that, but the problem is people aren't trained to utilize it effectively. They mm-hmm. create stress artificially, but there's no measure to that stress. They create it, but they don't evaluate it. They don't compare that to results. They just create stress, and then they just take the results at face value. Right. Well, there's nothing learned or gained there. You might as well, you know what I mean? You might as well have them go run for half an hour and go shoot and call it a day. Like there, right. it's just a very interesting new way of thinking about things. And, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that hopefully we're going to be able to change the script on moving forward for a lot of agencies and a lot of academies that are still doing things in that old methodology, which is, yeah. well, let's just, phys- let's just, let's just add a whole bunch of physical stressors to mm-hmm. simulate a stressful environment. And then we're going to put them through their training, right? right. You're, there's minimal effectiveness in doing that. That's right. Yeah, there's a lot of good work uh, going on out there. It's just amazing the minds that are they're at work in that field. And and uh, I hope to get to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we were piggybacking on at Quantico from those people, those academics uh, and professionals that were really pushing the envelope uh, in that in that research area. Yeah, well, let's talk about it, man. Um, let's yeah. let's dive into it. What what was it specifically about? So when when people hear Quantico, right, they get a lot of different opinions and thoughts and stuff on that, right? Like, yeah. is it some type of secret squirrel? Like, do a like what's going on there that they're not telling us? Like, <laughs> it, the funny the funny thing is just because people don't know, like you said, because information yeah. isn't shared. That's um, right. So what is it right now that that is going on there that people that officers and agencies across the country should know about because I think a lot of people don't realize like that's a that's a resource that you can tap into right now. Oh yeah, right? like, yeah, for sure. And so, what is what is it going? What's going on there right now? What's happening at Quantico? So, of course, Quantico itself is a Marine Corps reservation, and um, it's we are a guest of the Marine Corps. When I say we, the FBI was we right. <laughs> uh, the, F- the FBI Academy is a occupies a very small corner of the the Marine Corps reservation at Quantico. And uh, therein you have uh, several different entities within the FBI. The most famous at Quantico, of course, is the FBI Academy, right? Where new agents are trained 
and you have the National Academy program, which we'll talk about here shortly. Uh, but the FBI Academy is where all new agent training takes place uh, prior to the new agent um, shipping out to their field office. So all agents and now all support employees go through or FBI employees go through Quantico in some fashion. Uh, they've really developed a uh, pretty robust um, uh, analytical training uh, cadre out there. They've really put a lot of money and work and effort into that. And, it, and it's really starting to show uh, some some real good results. But uh, kind of the, the what everybody thinks about, at least, you know, in my world, uh, when they say Quantico is the FBI Academy. Um, you also have the uh, DEA Academy is, uh, you know, our, our cousin or sister or I don't know what they like to be referred to. Probably not sister agency, but uh, <laughs> but uh, other agency that is also co-located there. They do an amazing job with their recruits. They're literally right across the road from us and, and share a lot of our facilities. Um, you have the uh, um, electronic research facility, which is located there. They do a lot of this kind of secret squirrel development stuff. Uh, obviously, it's a very secure campus within the Marine Corps campus. Um, and then, uh, you know, it, let's see, I'm trying to think what the other... <laughs> someone's going to get mad at me for forgetting what whatever their mission is. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the big, I guess the big dog on the block is the FBI Academy. Um, so there's two main missions at FBI Quantico, the, the FBI Academy, uh, and that is new agent training uh, and then the National Academy program. And, and, and for, for those that may be not familiar with that, uh, the National Academy program is a 10-week uh, residential school where uh, selectees from <clears throat> all 50 states, and, well, all 56 field offices, so there are 56 field offices in the FBI, each SAC or special agent in charge has autonomy to select those uh, attendees from their office of or area of responsibility to attend that 10-week training. It's very, very competitive in some areas of the country. Uh, some, you know, like it's not as competitive because they get more slots. But for example, in South Carolina, where I spent uh, the bulk of my career, <clears throat> I was our National Academy um, program coordinator. In addition to running firearms and everything else, wore a lot of hats in that in that role. But the NA program was one of my favorites. We got two slots per for the whole state. Uh, and it was it was four times a year. So super, super competitive. And just an incredible opportunity for a lot of these officers who may not have had the opportunity to go off to college. In a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, instances, this is uh, college-level uh, training for them to really understand what it takes to be a modern leader in law enforcement, right? So they're, they're going up there and they're getting academics, they're getting physical training, they're getting media training. Um, just everything we're seeing uh, from a national perspective at the FBI, they then in turn share with um, their um, students in these uh, uh, classes. I think, I think the classes are about 250 uh, students uh, per iteration. And 10% of that class is always devoted to international students. So we'd always have, um, you know, different uh, police executives from our, our, our partner agencies around the world generally but in some cases, it was actually from some uh, pretty interesting uh, 
pretty interesting uh, uh, participants. So uh, really an incredible program, and which is which has uh, benefited the Bureau. I mean, I can tell you personally, dozens of times in my international travels, the first thing I would do if I knew I was going to a country was look up who do we have that is an NA alumni on the list and they do a great job of keeping that. And I'll tell you, I was never disappointed. I would reach out and say, Hey, sir, I'm coming or ma'am, I'm coming to your country. We're going to do some training. And it was just incredible. The reception, the hospitality, uh, you know, that was, that was a personal, almost a selfish thing. But of course you can imagine in, you know, in times of crisis, what the program is really for is, you know, if something happens, the balloon goes up wherever, uh, we can pick up the phone and we have that common um, training, that common lexicon, that the whole nine yards where we're not just getting to know each other over the hood of a car at a crisis site, right? We've got somebody who's been through our training and and knows what we do and what we're about and what we need. And then we also know what they need and, and that sort of thing. So really, uh, obviously, a very expensive program to run. Uh, we feed them, house them, pay for their travel. Um, but it's, it's rewarding, not just for the FBI, but of course, you know, really it's a global, uh, investment. It's been amazing. Yeah, no, I definitely, I know a lot of grads, um, that have gone through that program and it's kind of interesting. It's one of those things. Um, there's a lot of pride behind being, a FBI NA member, like yeah. having gone through and gone through the Academy, you know, you see it on LinkedIn all the time. Guys have it as you know, I love it. I love FBI it. National Academy number, whatever, right? That's it's it's everywhere. It's kind of um, I would draw like it kind of similarly to like a Ranger school kind of thing in the military, right? Where it's yeah. it's everybody's everybody's law enforcement, but a very select few get to go to that school. Same thing in the military, right? You have a lot of people in the military, very few of them actually get to go through and, and pass Ranger school and get that tab. Yeah. Same same idea here, right? It's kind of an exclusive club. Um, that it's a very interesting program. I mean, I'd love to, at some point, I'm sure you and I will sit down and we'll talk and I'll I'll pick your brain about what that program actually entails, Mm -hmm. but there's, there's so much valid information there. And I'm really excited that that program exists and that they're continuing to push it out there. Right. I mean, there's still people that push to get that program to this day, right. They're sending in letters and they're, they're talking to their uh, regional reps saying, Hey, how do I get on this course? Like I got to get Well, and, you know, uh, it's funny you say that. I mentioned it is at the discretion of the SAC in that particular field office who they send, right? So my job in Columbia was to maintain a a list of those, you know, candidates who were eligible, met the criteria, and and literally the SAC would then look at, hey, it's time to pick two more, and he would go down and, and, uh, and she, now we have a female SAC in Columbia, but she would literally say, hey, let's send, you know, this department or that department. And, you know, I don't want to say it was political. Of course, there's always politics in everything. But there was definitely a consideration given to, hey, does this department play well with others, right? Are they supportive of uh, the NA program? Do they, you know, in South Carolina, we did uh, a monthly dinner. Uh, the National Academy Alumni Associates is a great organization. Once you graduate, you can be part of that. And in South Carolina, we really had, now it's a small state. Uh, we really had a special uh, relationship there where once a month there was a dinner hosted by one of the department graduates 
And it was, I mean, I got pretty fat because they were trying, <laughs> they were trying to outdo each other in They're terms of possible. You up. Well, yeah. you can imagine, right. Eating in South Carolina and, and uh, it's just the pride in ownership, the pride, the, the, uh, almost, uh, um, that, uh, you know, being part of that, 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 uh, cadre is something special. And, um, so I'll tell you, you might, I know you've been really big into pushing uh, law enforcement fitness and, you know, watching you on, on LinkedIn and stuff. One of the things I did when I took over, uh, as the NA coordinator in South Carolina about 10 years ago, we really didn't have a fitness standard. You had to run a 10 minute mile. That was kind of it. And it was almost a gentleman's uh, course where you would attest that, yeah, I could run a 10 minute mile and send in your form. And, and uh, I tell you, man, I had, I took over and, you know, Quantico is, I call it the fittest place on earth, right? You're at a Marine Corps base um you who, who does training that's what they do uh you're right next to the dea academy you've got some really high speed people there you've got hrt is there so it's a fit place and you know living in south carolina i absolutely love it here the men and women in south carolina law enforcement are second to none um but you know the reality is there are a lot of of officers out there who are too heavy to do the job the reality yeah. is that there's there's three XL sized uniforms. Is the reality of it? Yes, yes. So I went to my boss at the time. I said, "Hey, boss, I would like to implement a physical fitness standard prior to attending uh, the NA." And he said, "Yeah, absolutely, love it. You know, do it." So <laughs> I I only thought it was fair to hold them to the same standards that the FBI agents were. And it's it's. It's great. It's um, what do you call it? It's uh, graded according to your age group. So 20 to 30, 30 to 40, 40 to 50. And there are certain percentages in there. And the minimal passing score for your age group is 40 percent. And the the test for the agents entails it's a mile and a half run. I think it starts with uh, sit ups in a minute and then you get a 10 minute rest and then you have to do a 300 meter sprint. Uh, and then you get a 10 minute rest and then you have to do push-ups, uh, maximum effort without stopping again, 10 minute rest. And it's, and finally it's a, a mile and a half run. And, you know, none of those individual, uh, test components are necessarily difficult, but when you compress them uh, into no more than a 10 minute rest period between there, are a lot of people can't do it. And uh, even at the 40th percentile for their age group. And uh, so when I first rolled that out to, you know, my colleagues that were interested in going, there was a lot of pushback. Right. Hey, uh, not really sure. And I'll tell you, we had about a 75 percent fail rate the first two years. Um, And of course, when you work somebody up to go to the academy, there's a lot of uh, paperwork and a lot of time involved and they come out to the track and just can't cut it. We got to scramble to get a new person in there. So it took a little while um, to get the program up and running. Uh, it was fully embraced by uh, my colleagues in South Carolina. And I'll tell you, man, um, I had a I had a gentleman. I pulled his file. My, the, you know, the boss said, hey, we're going to send uh, a guy from this agency. So I pull the file and I look at the file and it says, uh, you know, 510, 
296, right? And I'm thinking, wow, that's a that's a pretty thick dude. Um and or a professional bodybuilder. Possibly. Yeah, you never know, right? right? You never know. Right. That BMI ain't, ain't always correct. You know what I mean? Exactly right. Well, then I looked closer and it was 396. And this is an application that, you know, the person fills the, the, it out themselves. Okay. So you're thinking, all right, 396, when you fill it out yourself, you're probably talking buck, you know, 425 realistically. <laughs> and sure enough. So I call the guy. I say, hey, man, listen, congratulations. Uh, you've, you've been selected now you have to pass this physical fitness test and, you know, I'm willing to give it to you. So we went out to the high and he showed up and, you know, it was apparent he wasn't going to get it right. He was trying hard, wasn't going to get it. Um, after he failed, he and I walked around the track and, uh, talking to him and he was very disappointed. And he said, look, man, can I get a second chance? I said, look, man, I, I, I absolutely. Uh, it's going to take some time. I said, how about nine months from right now you retest, right? You got a lot of work to do in nine months and I'll be damned if that guy didn't lose 150 pounds in nine months, smoke the PT test, went on to, uh, the NA and smoke the yellow brick road, which is the culminating physical challenge, uh, for the NA graduates, man. I was so proud of that guy. It was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, most of the uh, selectees that went were very grateful that we had held them to that standard because you don't want to be that guy at Quantico that people are pointing at going, man, <laughs> you, you know, know what I mean? Um, so just a funny little anecdotal point to that. So I'm going to be going back to Toronto in May, OTAB, which is the Ontario Tactical Advisory Body. Um, it's a provincially run organization. They're kind of NTOAs are up here in, in Canada. Um, they run their in-person event in May, and part of that thing, it's it's a fun run, but essentially you run up a fucking mountain yeah, and then, you know, have some pops at the top. But I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I'm a former, they know I'm a former military guy, they know what I do and what I train, and I'm like, if I show up there, and I'm the last one, and it's a bunch of operators, and I'm the yes. last one up the hill, I'm going to get laughed off that fucking mountain. Yep. So I'm like, so now I'm hitting the gym harder than I ever have before because I'm like, I am not going to be even yeah. in the bottom half of this. Yeah, that's right. right. But and it's, it's it's that competitive like, yeah, you got to get there kind of thing, right? And and you know, and, and you know, honestly, we are grooming these guys for leadership, and you lead by example, right? You don't want to put some guy in there that that is a food blister, right? <laughs> to lead his troops because that becomes acceptable. And it's just not, and it's not, not that I'm, listen, I struggle with my weight. I'm a big dude and my family, I've got several people in my family who are really heavy. So I get it. I mean, I love food uh, and I'm not particularly athletic, but it is so important. Uh, Selectively from, uh, athletic. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was never one of those guys that was just a gifted athlete. You know, there, I knew that, uh, you know, HRT was never in the cards for me man i was i was so fortunate to have stayed healthy enough to to pass the test to get on an fbi swat team that was the pinnacle of my physical prowess man you know right i was always you know high school athlete but nothing special the the guys that make those teams are elite level athletes and i've mm -hmm. got all the you know respect in the world for them but the very least we can do from a rank and file law enforcement, um, especially at Quantico and, and you're leading 
by example, you got to set that standard, man. You got to keep, uh, you know, healthy weight so that you can do the job. Yeah. I think a key point of that too, and, and to go back to your earlier point that you made, I think a lot of people, it's funny because um, when I, before I even joined the military, um, I always thought in my mind, because all you have exposure to is what's on TV and what's in movies. And, and yeah. you're thinking, you know, these elite tier one operators are all 225 pound, just jacked dudes right. that can lift cars and, and run forever. Um, and then you actually get into the, you get into the military, you get into law enforcement and you realize, well, that, first of all, that isn't the case. If you can find a guy who's over 200 pounds, you're like, holy shit. Yeah. Um, and then you realize the, the selection criteria for those units, even though the, the physical components kind of just there as kind of a, Hey, you have to meet the physical component. Yeah. Those are the sharpest knives in the drawer. Oh yeah, um, man. When yeah, it comes sure. to intellect, those are the smartest guys in the world. And, and I think people don't give, I think that's not given enough credit. Um, mm. When you talk about these tier one units, when you talk about, you know, FBI HRT or SWAT teams, and, and that's, that's universally across the board. Those are the people that are critical thinkers that can, that can adapt and move and, and change a game plan in an instant yeah. to lead to a successful outcome. That's what you're looking for. You're not looking for that. You're not looking for that guy who can, you know, can bench 225, 50 times in a row. Like that's, yeah. that's not what it is. Um, and I think that's just another interesting component to that because the physical fitness, which is always interesting to me from coming from the military background, our Canadian forces recently changed. And this was right before, right after I had left um, and released, they changed the physical standard to like an even lesser standard. Um, yeah. We used to have a, uh, a, a bifurcated, so a male and a female standard. Um, but they reduced it down to like a, like a, a standard that I think the hardest thing you have to do is like throw a med ball against the wall, like a dozen times. Like hmm. it, it's kind of one of those things where I know why they did it. And they're like, well, if you're combat arms, combat arms has your BFT, your battle fitness testing, and you have to do your rucks and you have to do all that. That's a different thing. If you're going to be out, you know, frontline kind of stuff for it, but any support staff, well, you can kind of, they're, they're support staff, so they can be back over here, right? Mm -hmm. um, but until we get to a component in law enforcement where we split the duties between a, a sworn armed law enforcement officer who is going to go out and be the public face of law enforcement and a more of civilian role where they're now behind the scenes and maybe those are specialists, whether they're investigators or they do different things, but behind the scenes, but they're not the ones that are being tasked with physical things that they need to do on patrol until we get to that point, there has to be a high minimum standard because at the end of the day, if yeah. someone's coming to back you up, you want that person to be capable to mm. do what you need them to do. And unfortunately we've seen this many, many times over and, and it's, and I'd hate to Monday morning quarterback stuff, but you see it where an officer gets into trouble and, backup gets there or doesn't get there but the person that shows up isn't yeah. able to assist them to the right. where and, and sometimes officers end up losing their lives yeah and that sure. that's a real issue and i'm just surprised that people are just like nah it's a it's acceptable that's a, it's acceptable like yeah. what's the number right yeah. like where who's coming up with this fucking number that's acceptable you know what my acceptable number is it's zero my number is zero. So yeah. I'm like, I'm like, and I don't have the highest standards in the world. So 
I'm, I'm just trying to figure out, like, is that something from your perspective? Because you get, like you had said, you've traveled around the world. You've been everywhere. Mm-hmm. Is that something unique to to what we're doing here in North America? Or is that kind of just all over the place? You know, I'd, it's hard to say, especially now. And, you know, obviously this is you and I talk. This is not a political show and I, I don't want to get into politics and I, I won't. But the reality is that the events of the last several years and the and the sort of the, the mood of the country, we'll say, <clears throat> has put an extreme damper on law enforcement recruiting. OK, so as I said, my job, my unit's job was to travel the country uh, and world and work with law enforcement officers on the on the front lines. Right. And you really get to know them and they kind of open up to you and, and you have these great exchanges. And, and I will tell you what is universal is the uh, concern uh, from a uh, standpoint of, hey, look, this is already a dangerous job. Everybody gets into it knows it's dangerous. What, what wasn't the case when I got into it 25, 28 years ago was that I didn't feel like the community didn't have my back, right? Mm-hmm. I felt like, hey, I, you know, the benefit of the doubt would always be given to the, and that was the case in court, you know, when, when I was a policeman and, you know, you'd have a, a red light case or a, 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 a stop sign where you'd write somebody for something and, you know, uh, you'd show up. There's no, there was no cruiser cameras. There was no body cams back then. And you would, you know, swear that yes, you know, uh, the, the driver was observed and, and ran the red light and blah, blah, blah. And then of course the driver would say, that's not what happened. And the judge would look at you and, you know, and all things being equal, the the judge would side with the officer. That's not the case anymore in court. And it seems to be that is not the case uh, anymore, you know, from 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 the public standard. So what I'm saying is you are seeing and we are seeing and and, and I used to make a point. We would train in a lot of the uh, local police academies around the country. So I would always make a point to go speak with whether it was the recruiting lieutenant or the director and say, Hey, you know, how's recruiting? How's morale? It's down, man, everywhere. They're having trouble filling classes and they're, and they're, and and those that are able to be filled, many of the recruits are substandard compared to what they were even three or four years ago. So, you know, from a physical standpoint, I think all of that is compounded. Uh, Our profession, you know, law enforcement, is is really at, at a crisis point in terms of you know hey who are we going to field to do this very challenging work when you know your average salary for a policeman in the United States is probably what around thirty some thousand dollars a year uh, and it used to be such a uh, rewarding career now now officers and I'm not blaming anybody I totally get it uh, are scared not only for their physical safety. Uh, but for their their livelihood as well, because you could do everything right and still be judged on, you know, whatever, Twitter or Insta, however that stuff works. 30 seconds later, you're infamous. Your family's being doxxed. And oh, yeah, a couple of days later, the facts come out and you actually did a perfectly acceptable job. But that doesn't matter. Cats you know? already out of the bag. Right? Cats already in the bag. Right. So uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know. You know, again, it's probably a, a subject for a roundtable of yours or something, but um, in terms of seeing uh, that as a problem, yeah, it's a problem everywhere. 
So that's that's interesting you bring that up. So this episode, I think, is going to be coming out. So if you're listening to this, we're recording this. It's the 6th of January. I think it'll be out before the end of the month here, um, 2022. On the 27th of January, we're actually doing a roundtable that's been preset, and it's on retention and recruitment. Oh, wow. So yeah. if uh, so, stay tuned for that uh, or go back and take a listen to it. But uh, yeah, essentially we're doing one on retention and recruitment and um, but bringing in all those components, um, you know, the one of the, the big things you had talked about um, having some type of psychological profile or understanding of a person during that recruitment phase. Like, do we know if they're capable of making a decision under stress? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have uh, Dr. Catherine Kuhlman, who's coming in, who's from Arizona. She's phenomenal. Um, but talking exactly about that, talking about how do we as an agency or as a recruiting officer or as a psychologist who's assisting the PD in, in vetting these recruits, how do we set that standard and how do we determine whether or not somebody is capable from a from a psychological perspective to handle the, the added pressure of law enforcement in today's you know culture? Because it's you could definitely argue that to be a law enforcement officer now, getting in now, is significantly more difficult um, from a psychological perspective than it was 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, um, right. Just because, like you had said, there's there's no support. And a lot of the times, if you're not getting support from the community, um, then you're not getting support from the government. You're not getting support from potentially even your um, your agency, especially if your senior command staff and your chiefs and sheriffs and stuff are appointed in positions, right? Like there's right. so many variables um, that it is make it very, very difficult. And and you just basically echoed a lot of the conversations I've had over the last year, which is yeah. we don't like, I, I talked to a guy out of North Carolina. So very close to you. Um, mm. He said they ran a recruiting effort. They had like 15 people show up. Yeah. Isn't that like, amazing? And they had yeah. like eight spots to fill. Like yeah. you want to, you want to talk about right. like, select the amount of the the pool the talent pool that you get to choose from that's i can i can almost guarantee that that's going to be a poor outcome out of that out of that system Um, i mean conversely up here in canada um i mean i'm closest to winnipeg which is uh the largest major center near me um and they did a recruiting drive i think a year and a half ago now i can't remember the last one was but they had i think it was like a dozen or so spots um that weren't designated for like laterals Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they had 2000 plus people apply mm-hmm. um, and you're going through and, you know, it's basically they get their, cre- you're doing multiple testing, multiple selection criteria, you're doing physicals, you're doing psychologicals. And, and then they still have their pick of hundreds of the, and they, then they do their backgrounds and literally they can hand pick exactly who they want. Um, it, yeah. That's not a real, that's not the reality for a lot of places, especially in the United yeah. States. Like that's yeah. just, it, Imagine an agency now in the U.S. that had two thousand applicants. Right. Like, what right. would that look? Imagine what the police force from a national perspective would look like. Yeah. If we had that many applicants, that many people who wanted to be in law enforcement right now. Yeah, it's a it's a tough, you know, and everything everything is a pendulum, right? So I hope, knock on wood, that you know we're going through struggles as a society, and we'll figure it out uh, together, and. Uh, hopefully it doesn't do too much lasting damage to the, to the profession. I'm, I'm worried that it is, uh, you know, I, so you and I were talking, I'm not much of a technology guy. I just got on LinkedIn not too long ago. It's my only social media that I do, uh, you know, professionally. And, and I'm, I'm struck by, and I don't know if it's 
just this year because I, again, haven't really watched it before, but I am struck by the number of retirement announcements I've seen in the last couple of months, right? So, so from say Halloween time to now, every time I open it up, it's, oh, I'm hanging it up, I'm retiring. And, and I don't know if that's just a wave or if that is, it's got to be related to. Well, there's, I on. think there's a lot of people too, and, and you'll, you'll, um, relate to this as well. There's a lot of people that were at their, their past their minimum retirement. And they're like, I'm just going to, I'm hanging around. Cause I, I love what I'm doing. I enjoy what I'm doing. I feel like I'm making a difference. Yeah. And what, after what's happened over the last 18 months, they're going, the juice ain't worth the squeeze anymore. Yeah, man. Yeah. Right? Well, so uh, I tell you, you know, I had a moment like that. Um, so when the George Floyd related riots were going on downtown, in DC. Uh, I, I was brand new to my unit, <coughs> excuse me, at Quantico. And, um, you know, <laughs> we're trainers, man. We're, I'm no longer with the SWAT team. The, the SWAT teams are either based in the field offices or HRT, of course, is based in Quantico. And uh, so all hell's breaking loose downtown. Uh, I get a call from my boss saying, hey, man, uh, you know, how much SWAT gear do you have? I said, I, I got nothing, man. I, it's all back in Columbia. I turned it in when I left. He said, well, scrounge up some SWAT gear and get you, how many guys in your unit do you have that are SWAT trained? I said, well, we're all SWAT trained to, to be a, a, a tactical instructor. You have to be um, SWAT certified, but we're no longer active. We're, you know, we're kind of that dinosaur phase. Uh, he said, well, we need you downtown, get your unit, <clears throat> form up you got a couple hours and we were literally scrounging through old armor old helmets uh and and just grabbing whatever gear we could and report downtown to try to help secure washington field office and then of course what was going on at lafayette park well so i'm down there with a bunch of guys um that of course the FBI, the one thing we absolutely don't do is crowd control. That's not our mission. It's We're not trained for it. When I was with Fairfax County, I was part of the civil disturbance unit. Uh, I guess they still call it that, but, you know, the the riot squad. Uh, and you had, you know, the, the, the shields and the batons and the helmets and the armor to protect yourself. The FBI had none of that, man. We had um, SWAT gear, and almost every option we had was lethal, uh, right? So... I'm standing out there trying to secure this building with a bunch of guys that that are equipped for a totally different mission set and, you know, not blaming anybody. Right. This was unfolding quickly, but we really weren't prepared to uh, to do the mission that was being asked. And I'm sitting here thinking, my God, what would happen? You know, if this really broke bra broke bad, somebody grabs a, a one of our rifles or a pistol or whatever, and the next thing you know, you've got uh, officer or agent standing there with block lettering saying FBI and a couple of dead protesters or worse uh, in a, in the blink of an eye, right? So, and you can't tell me that that hadn't gone through the minds of some of these agitators. You know, I think most of the protesters down there were peaceful uh, and 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 were there to make a point, but they're always embedded agitators and every one of these things that are looking to make a point and just takes one so it was a nightmare to me here i was at the end of my 20 something year career with a family and a, you know just like everybody else thinking man this could all go up in smoke in the blink of an eye uh and and 
you know, it's, is it worth it? No, it's not. So yeah, it was a, it was a strange feeling. And uh, I think every single officer that was down there, you know, uh, during all that stuff probably had the same thoughts going through their mind. So it's a, it's a struggle, man. You know, that was kind of a flashpoint, but uh, you know, these guys that are still pushing cruises around every single day, uh, it's got to go through their mind every time they, they turn the cruiser on, you know? Yeah, no uh, so anyway, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a crisis, I would say, um, for our profession. Well, I think you made the right choice because now I can talk to you about shit. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to take the opportunity to segue because you had talked about um, spooling up, you know, um, kind of an ad hoc tack team and, and the the trainers that you had at your unit and everybody being SWAT qualified. I, I do want to take the opportunity to talk about the the tactical training unit, the program, yeah. and those the the requirement that every single one of those instructors has to meet to even be part of that group. Right. I know we, kind of, we teased that at the beginning and I want to dive back into that now. Um, and so what is it exactly that is the requirement for uh, a tactical training unit instructor? So to, uh, to be a tactical instructor, not necessarily at the FBI Academy, but to be certified as a TI for the FBI, um, the, the rule now is, and it's funny, one of the struggles that I had when I assumed leadership of the unit was there had been a wide uh, range of um, prerequisite uh, uh, in place over the years. So you had a you had a legacy in the in the FBI going back probably twenty five or thirty years where um, you know somebody could wear the hat saying they're a TI, and depending on the iteration or the or the group that they went through with, could be a vastly different skill set uh, and background, right? So one of my priorities when, when I took over the unit was to get that program on a set of rails, right? Let's define what is it that makes someone a, an FBI TI, Certified Tactical Instructor. And so now uh, that, that policy is you must be first, you have to be a special agent. You have to be off of probation, which is two years after you graduate from Quantico. Uh, and then you have to be a certified firearms instructor by the FBI, and which is a pretty um, significantly difficult um, uh, accomplishment on itself, right? You, there's, um, it's one of the more difficult certifications to get uh, in the bureau. It's a when I went through, it was a two week long school. They've they've condensed it to one week, but <clears throat> the requirements are still the same. You still have to be able to do some pretty significantly precise shooting. Uh, there's a bullseye course, which is really the, probably the differentiator for most, um, which entails a 25 yard uh, you know, course of fire. You fire 30 rounds starting at the 25 yard line. Uh, the first phase is 10 rounds from the 25 uh, with it's, it's considered the untimed portion, but it's four minutes for 10 rounds from the 25 yard line. And it's, it's of course fired at a bullseye concentric target. Uh, you then move forward together as a group uh, and you have these uh, slow fire phase, which is uh, two strings of five rounds each in 15 seconds. Again, same target of course. And then you have the rapid fire phase again from the 15 yard line, but now it is two strings of five rounds in 10 seconds. And the cumulative minimum passing score is a 260 
out of a possible 300 uh, maximum points with obviously three, 30 rounds. Um, I'd say the fail rate is, you know, pretty high. Um, I want to say it was probably 30 to 40 percent of those that actually showed up to come to the training. Uh, there for a while, we're having a very high fail rate. So it's super competitive to get a slot for firearms training, uh, firearms instructor school. Uh, and then, of course, it's difficult to pass. Then you also have to uh, have an opening for, be selected for, and make the SWAT team in your division, right? So each division, there are 56 field offices. They all have their own SWAT teams. Um, and depending on, you know, if there's an opening, uh, you know, so when I was in Miami, uh, big office, I think the first time we had an opening when I was down there, I think they had two or three openings and we had like 45 guys come out for the, for the team. And then conversely, when I was in Columbia, uh, we, we had an opening or two and we had two or three guys come out for the team. So it, it's really a, a different, um, uh, experience depending on where you come from. Um, so you have to be selected for, uh, obtain SWAT certification, which entails going to Quantico and going through the SWAT operations unit or what they now call the national tactical training unit which is all SWAT stuff. They have a certification course. Once you get certified as all of that, you are then eligible to come to a TI school. Okay. So we figure by the point that you've done all this training uh, and you have this experience and you bring, you've done a lot of entries, you've done a lot of tactical missions. Uh, we think you bring enough to the table to uh, be an effective student at our tactical instructor certification course. Uh, which is run by my unit. Um, when I took over that unit nationwide, we had approximately 775 TIs, certified TIs across the FBI. Um, the crazy part was we didn't have a database. We really had no idea how exactly how many we had. And you had obviously, you know, varying degrees of involvement, right? You and I talked about, hey, you know, some guy could get certified uh, in the 90s, never participate again. He's still a TI technically, right? Which is garbage. So the first thing we did when I when I, I got into the uh, position, we did a data call of all the, um, what we call our principal tactical instructors for, there's a PTI for every division. They manage the program for their own division did a data call. Hey, please send me those people that are uh, active in the program that are certified. We'll check it against our records. We came up with about 750 to 800 of those. They were probably, I don't know, 600 that were active somewhat. Uh, and many, many had not been in any type of um, refresher course or anything like that. So uh, we wanted to get a data call on the numbers initially. And then we worked with the field to determine, okay, what do you guys think is the right solution for calling someone a tactical instructor? What, you know, what do you got to bring to the table? The problem with the process that I just described to you uh, in terms of getting all those prerequisite certifications is in order to get through all those schools and get those selections, you would be on average 10 to 12 years into what is essentially a 20 year career. So you're halfway over before you ever set foot in the program. Right. And uh, so you're really, you know, you're, you're really missing out on a lot of time 
uh, in, in the program in terms of um, picking up on what people are teaching, what, what you're seeing, because, you know, you're, you're an instructor, you know, uh, any good instructor will admit that most of what he does is stolen from somebody else or borrowed or pieces. Yeah, I love that. That was really effective. That was absolutely terrible. I'm never going to do that. But you're learning as an instructor from other great instructors. So one of the things I wanted to do uh, when I got into this job was expand the program. And, you know, full disclosure, I was told, hey, you know, first order of business from executive management when I started was to expand the tactical instructor program. And that that had uh, been attempted several times before, right? Hey, we need to open the aperture. We need to bring more people in. And uh, I was told uh, we, we need to create a non-SWAT pathway to tactical instructor certification. And, you know, I get it. Uh, you know, there, 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 there is a um, need to bring more people to the table because there's a lot of science and a lot of uh, data behind uh, that supposition that, hey, look, um, the people that, you know, are doing the training can't be monolithic and then train a, a, a wide variety of people, right? And quite honestly, when I walked in the door, uh, the TI cadre for the FBI was was pretty monolithic, right? You you had a you had about 95, 98% white male training cadre. And again, the last thing in the world I'm doing is disparaging that crew because they are phenomenal. I was one of them, right? And I and I was I was somewhat insulted initially because hey, I went through all this, all the hoops, did all the training, got all the certifications, and now you're telling me that you just want to change, you know, what the prerequisites are to let other people in the door. And that really wasn't the intent. The intent was to uh, make the program better. So <laughs> you can imagine me in a position now trying to sell that, market it to the cadre that existed, who was very reluctant or, or resistant to changing, moving the goalposts or however you want to refer to it. Uh, that's the last thing in the world I wanted to do. So that was probably the challenge of my career was sort of dancing that line of how do you uh, change this program that is really effective uh, without undermining or undercutting the credibility of all the work and all of the experience that those people that have done all that work, right. And, and bring all that experience to the table without just saying, Oh yeah, we're going to let this person in too. Cause they look different or they, they bring something different to the table. So it was, it was definitely a challenge. I, I definitely got a lot of pushback. I, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, working on, how do we do this? And, and what we came up with, I think was pretty elegant. Uh, and I will give all the credit in the world to, to the guys that worked for me. I recruited a guy. Uh, he's still in the bureau. His name is Sam Benson. Uh, one of the best instructors at the FBI Academy, uh, former military guy, um, just a lot of leadership, 
Sam and I had been buddies for years. We crossed paths at different SWAT schools and things. And uh, just a really uh, kind of a quirky guy, but brilliant. And um, I knew he was working on his master's degree education and was in a separate unit. First thing I did when I got the job was recruit Sam to come work for me. I said, look, man, here's what I want you to do. I want you to design a journeyman uh, program that would complement the tactical instructor development program, right? I want to bring people in at about the five-year mark, three to five years, um, so that, you know, they're not running the show, but they're there to help. They're there to be the journeyman, the apprentice, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, the, 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 the program we came up with was what we call the Practical Applications Instructor, PAI. And that's kind of a nod to the old school FBI training at Quantico that my unit years ago, actually when I went through as a new agent training, was called the Practical Applications Unit. And that's who ran Hogan's Alley and ran all the, the tactical training for the FBI. It was subsequently changed to the Tactical Training Unit and then when I got selected as the TTU unit chief, we actually bifurcated TTU into the tactical training unit, which was my unit, and then the practical applications unit, which was run by another buddy of mine. He, uh, the PAU, is responsible for new agent training at Quantico. So what we call the basic field training course, BFTC, everything they get from the day they are hired until they graduate new agent training is run by PAU. Anything postgraduate is us or my old unit, the, the TTU. So in addition to the tactical instruction program, I also had the TVOC, which is the Tactical Emergency Vehicle Operations Center, which is our driver's training stuff also at Quantico. Um, but our real heavy lift was the tactical instructor program. And of course the LETS program, which we talked about earlier. Um, so the PAI, Practical Applications Instructor, was designed as a, again, as a journeyman instructor development program that, you know, we leaned on the field, right? We put it on, we put the onus on the, uh, the principal tactical instructors in the field to say, look, send us those new agents or the relatively new agents or even senior agents who maybe either weren't on the SWAT team for whatever reason, right? There were, there were lots of really highly skilled agents out there who for a myriad of reasons were not on the SWAT team. There may not have been an opening. There may have been an injury that precluded them from being able to do the weighted, whatever it was, maybe they weren't interested in SWAT. That doesn't mean they don't bring a lot to the table, a lot of perspective, a lot of a lot of very valuable um, uh, information to share. So we wanted to bring those people into the program. Um, and so Sam started working with, uh, you know, some some really interesting people on the outside. Um, so so one of the most innovative groups out there. And I, I, I looked, I didn't see if you guys have touched base with them yet, but the Mission Critical Teams Institute, MCTI, a uh, guy named Dr. Preston Klein and uh, Coleman Ruiz have been doing some really interesting research on uh, high-level professionals in military, firefighting, policing, military units. Like, 
in so the mission critical teams, right? So the ultra high consequence uh, for failure in a condensed time frame. That's kind of their their wheelhouse. And and Dr. Klein and his 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 team really have focused on you know what is it that makes those uh, teams effective and 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 the sports psychology uh, piece to it. Uh, so it, we kind of started with MCTI and Sam's interaction with them uh, before he even came to, to TTU. Um, we wanted to identify, you know, effects of high stress immersion events on the mind and the body and how to adapt to those effects and retain maximum proficiency. That's what MCTI is doing. Um, so we kind of borrowed with their permission uh, and their involvement, really. We actually had Dr. Klein come and speak to our unit, which was amazing. Uh, about what they were doing and, and really the, the future of, of training. And so Sam incorporated a lot of those concepts of adult learning and, uh, you know, what is it that, that makes an effective trainer into his PAI training course? And I'll tell you, man, um, that PAI, uh, Practical Applications Instructor Certification course, to me, is one of the most uh, innovative and forward-leaning uh, courses the Bureau has come up with in years. Um, they're actually looking at incorporating a lot of that, uh, a lot of the concepts that, that they've, they've come up with into the leadership uh, uh, programs outside of just tactics, right? So, so everything. Um, so they, it's kind of neat to see where that's going. Um, you know, the, the involvement with some of these, uh, like University of Pennsylvania, uh, a lot of the research coming out of there, Sam is incorporating that into, and not just Sam, but the other team, right? Uh, put it, the guys on the team, uh, the, the psychological concepts in training. Um, they lean heavily on the, like the, the constraints led approach to training, like, you know, for, for sports uh, performance. Uh, what is, what is acceptable movement wise rather than heavy focus on repetition and memorization. We want to, uh, you know, the constraint led, approach uh key principle is the basically the intertwined relationship between the individual and their environment what is going on around them should dictate what their actions are so you know obviously policing situations are never the same um and it's it's can you look for and quickly identify what is important to you um and then and act not perfectly but reasonably right acceptably that's what we're looking for. Not the not the perfect dance step anymore. It is what is acceptable based on on your environment, and that environment is constantly changing, right? So that's kind of what we're we're looking for uh, in terms of identifying those instructors that aren't necessarily providing, you know, uh, how do I want to say this? Aren't necessarily providing the I don't know dance steps for lack of a better term, but are asking the right questions of their trainees. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I, so there's a lot going on and, and, you know, Sam would come in and, and Sam's much more of an academic than I am. And the guys that were working for me were just rock stars. I had such a good time, you know, I'd sit there and one of them would darken my door and come in. Hey, you got a minute boss. Yeah. And they tell me these incredible things that they're, you know, pushing, and wanting to try I'm like, yeah, let's do it, man. And, and, uh, so, you know, we sent people out to do research, to interact with some of these other, uh, you know, just high level elite, either academic or military units. And, 
Of course, the military has been unbelievably supportive of what we're doing there. There's a obviously a relationship with, you know, you got a lot of guys from HRT came out of these elite military units. And so we've got an advantage to that, you know, in terms of a natural in. But uh, yeah, it's been kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of what those components that you mentioned there, that's that's kind of the core focus of what we're rolling out with this instructor development program with ILET, right? And we talked about this offline and the idea of how do we bring in the best of the best, these adult mm-hmm. learning principles, What what is the cutting edge of what we know to maximize learning and training right now? And yeah. then how do we apply that right now, right? And so you don't have this giant gap of, okay, well, let's go field test this over here for a year and then we'll get the feedback. And then by the time that gets rolled out, it's already 10 years down the road and it's, we're already moving on to the next thing. Um, yeah. That's, it seems to be like what you, the, the culture that you created or were a part of creating um, with your unit built that right into the the fabric of it, where it was, you know, I, I love what you said. It's like somebody comes into you with an idea and they're like, Hey, can we try this? It's like, fuck yeah, let's try it. Like what's the worst <laughs> that's going to happen. Right? Um, right. I think a lot of people are afraid of that, right. Afraid of that change. Um, you know, it's funny. Mm-hmm. We, we rolled something out earlier, uh, this year when we ran the ILET summit, the second one, the second annual one. Um, and we started this hashtag called change the standard. Mm-hmm. And, and it was funny because a lot of people were super supportive of it. They're like, Hey, this is awesome. But I got some, I got some kickback on it. And some people were like, what do we, why do we need to change our standard? Like, yeah. why do we have to change what we're doing? And I'm like, always, I'm always. Like, I'm like, you're missing, you're missing the, you're missing the point there, Bubba. Like, yeah, that's you, right. You know what I mean? Like, I have the opportunity to speak, uh, like I said, at Ailita, and, and part of the concept is adapt and evolve. Um, yes, yes. And, you know, as an organism, it, like take training, take law enforcement completely outside of it and break it down to a simple biological component. You yeah. take any organism on the planet. If that organism doesn't evolve over time, it will die. Yeah, like for that's, sure. It's very simple. It's a very simple concept. And but people get stuck in this training rut where it's, yes. you know, it's it's that it's the inbred training model. And anybody who's listened to this podcast has heard me said that a, a billion and one times already. But that inbred training model where you have an instructor who learns from their instructor who learns from their instructor, and mm. it would be the example of you, like you guys said, you have DEA right across the street. Somebody who's stuck in that mode wouldn't even walk across the street to talk to those trainers about what oh, they're yeah. doing. Absolutely, because right. we're doing that's that's DEA. We're better than them. Like yeah. the and I'm not saying that's what the mindset was, but that's the example is well, no, that's it's, like it's that's that natural. culture, right? That culture of hey, listen, yeah. we can always be better. Um, I was I was experimenting with this concept the other day. I kind of I walk and talk a lot, so like mm-hmm. when I'm outside shoveling snow or or whatever, I'm I'm just always thinking and talking to myself. Mm-hmm. One of these ideas was, you know, in martial arts, and I don't know what your your background in, in martial arts is, but I I had this I had this explained to me right when I first started, and I was like 14 years old, um, and I got into into training full time, and one of the one of the uh, senior guys in our school and one of the masters came up to me and he said, um, "Where do you want to get to?" And I was like, "Well, obviously, I want to get my black belt, like right, like." I'm a 14 year old kid. Like that's of course, of course I want to be a black belt. Like they're the cool, like that's what I want. Right. right? Of course I want the black belt. He's like, awesome. And when you get there, you can start your training. And I'm like, I'm like, Whoa, what? Like, what do you mean? And it's this concept that's been around for millennia, 
right? If you if you follow martial arts and back to the very beginning of it, and and the concept is, you start your training when you become a black belt. That's when you can begin your training. That's the start. That's the start of the journey. Yeah. Um, and it's this weird concept where people think, well, what do you mean it's a start? It's like, well, once you get to that level, once you get to being a TI with the FBI and you get in there, that's the starting point. Now, now it's on, now the onus is on you to go out and learn more and that's evolve it. and adapt and change the way you're doing training to make it better for the person that comes after you. And well, yeah, you're exactly right. That's, that's what that's... we want to start pushing. Right. And I feel like that's exactly what you, the culture that you created with your unit. I hope so. You know, one of my one of my good friends I actually still uh, you know, work with now, he, he came off of um, HRT. And one of the stories he told me a while ago was about an interaction he had with a, an early generation HRT operator. I mean, those guys are legends, you know, and and apparently this guy made the remark to my buddy Mike. He said, hey, man, you guys talking about Mike's new generation of HRT operators, you guys are no better than we were, right? You were, you know, and I, I understand what he was trying to say, right? And and he's right. In in some ways, they're the same. But if subsequent generations of this elite team aren't better than the team 20 years ago, then shame on everybody. Like right. that's the whole point is right. continuously improving. And you know, the you know, I get it. Some of it you're you, you hit it. It's it's the macho insecure. I don't know what it is, but uh, you know, I feel like, you know, we're, we're finally as uh, law enforcement training professionals getting past a lot of that macho bullshit and, you know, embracing that, Hey, our job is to make these guys better. And there's no question that the, the, the guys that are at Quantico now are better than, than I was uh, even two months ago. I hope uh, that's the whole point. So, you I know, think, I think another key concept to that too, and I want to tie, tie this back to the technology conversation that we had. I think the difference now, it's not that there's more people talking about doing new and different types of training and evolving training. I think the difference is, is now we have ways to support those ideas and methodologies in a way that's, that's, you can explain to somebody who isn't an expert. So yeah. I can take something now and say, hey, listen, if we do this different type of training, because people have been talking about doing um, high fidelity, reality-based training for 20, 30 years. Right. The problem was, is we never had a way to scientifically prove that yeah. this is why we want to do it this way. It was always just like, I just inherently know that that's the way I want to do We should be doing it. Yeah. That doesn't, right. you know, that, that, that doesn't hold water when right. you're trying to sell that to an administration or trying to sell that to the chain of command. They're like, well, give me some hard data. Well, I don't have it. We didn't. We just yeah. have didn't have a way to produce it. Now we can. Now yeah. we can sit there and say, hey, listen, look at all of this research, all of the science that's been done that proves that this is the best way to do it. And now what's happening is you have instructors that are at that cutting edge that are calling out the old guard and saying, listen, man, like no disrespect, but you're wrong, and here's the proof that you're wrong. So yeah, we're going to move yeah. forward now. And yeah, I think, I think that's the big shift that's happened. Yeah, and and I, along those lines, I think the the emphasis now is moving towards, you know, at least at least for us, our emphasis and with the PAI, and then we've incorporated PAI, practical applications instructor principles, into TI training. Uh, is we don't, you know, it used to be it was, hey man, can you hit your corners? Can you know, do you 
are you are you doing the the dance steps for lack of a better term just right you know are you are you clearing your corners you're doing this you what we're moving towards now is it's not necessarily are you doing them exactly right but is is what you're doing and our students are we look as an instructor am i looking at is what they did acceptable based on the environment right not necessarily a playbook hey this is what you do this is what you do this is what you do it's hey be a problem solver be a, a collector of information and, and in order to do that our emphasis as an instructor has to be teaching the student where to look and why right not necessarily yes. what the what what the what the right thing or the perfect thing to have done is hey why'd you do that well i did this it well, you know what that makes sense good let's go right i want to build problem solvers, right? Independent uh, thinkers who are capable. And, you know, my job as an instructor is to equip them to know the right places to look and what's important right now in terms of solving this, whatever the critical, you know, situation is, right? So that that's kind of our focus uh, moving forward. Uh, I hope, I think it's right uh, in terms of, you know, developing trainers and also our pupils as well. Well, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, so if uh, <laughs> not that that means anything, um, but the uh, it's interesting you say that it's I we talk about this concept a lot, which is the why the why behind training. An instructor mm-hmm. needs to understand the why and not necessarily the how. Um, yeah. You know, you know they there is a very old saying, and I know you're very familiar with it, which is um, the the best players don't always make the best coaches. Yeah, um, for sure. And I always found it very interesting when you have very high level things like you're saying, like well. We have to make sure that you can hit this corner and you know how to do this this exercise or this this operation the correct way every time. It's important that they understand the concepts behind it and that they can explain it. But even more important is maybe that they can relay that information and get that out of the students that they're teaching, not necessarily that they're doing it all the time. Right. Like um, I had this conversation with uh, with Joe Ferreira, little Joe. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was a um, instructor with Fletzy for a long time. He trained under Colonel Rex Applegate. Um, you, had, you had him on the podcast a while ago. Right? Had him on the podcast. Yeah, we, yeah. Joe and I talk all the time, but we talked about you know firearms instructors, right? If if it was the best fi- if the best shooter in the world was the best firearms instructor, then everybody who taught law enforcement would all be Olympic athletes, <laughs> right? Yeah. But it's not the case because right. you know you there's a certain level of competency that's required. But yeah. after a level of that, that what that level of competency, once you reach that, you don't have to be the very best. You have to be able to get your students up yeah. to get to the, get the best out of your students. And I think yeah. that's that's always been something, especially at higher level, higher tier units, that that's kind of that difficult that difficult battle, right? Where it's yeah. Yeah. what's that standard? What is that level of competency that we need you to have? And now. Once you get there, we have to maintain that. But now we have to get you to learn how to bring other people up to that same level. And that's always the difficult part. Yeah. You know, for for me, as as someone who's been involved in training for almost my entire career, I was a field training instructor when I was uh, with the police department and loved that. You know, you have to go into it with a humble servant's heart such that your, your job is to instill confidence in your pupil's ability to go home at the end of the day, right? Like you're not going to be with them uh, a week from now, two hours from now, maybe 
And at the end of the day, my, my student, I need them to believe, you know, they obviously have to have some basis in reality, but they have to believe in themselves that, Hey, you know what? I can handle this job. And, and too many times the, the biggest pet peeve I've had as an instructor over the years is seeing, and unfortunately it's a fairly high percentage of law enforcement instructors and probably military as well that have that almost sadistic uh, approach to, yeah, I'm going to show you how much better I am. And I'm, you know, we're going to run this scenario. I'm going to slaughter every person that comes in here. And, and, you know, that I, one would, would never uh, have somebody on, on, you know, I wouldn't, I would never teach with somebody like that. I've, I've taught with them. I wouldn't do it again. We'd have conversations about it. You're, you're seeing that start to go away nationally i hope uh it was at least my experience or at least maybe it was hid but you know at the end of the day you've got to instill a sense of confidence and you know as an instructor you may have one or two runs with somebody in a class and that's all the instruction they're going to get right you know you've got everybody from the most elite teams to to you know your your rank and file policemen has a finite amount of training time period even even us even like hrt at quantico has a ton of training time but it is finite and so we really have to move to a point where we're identifying what are those things that are absolutely critical uh and focus on that before we start doing any of the other you know kind of bells and whistles stuff and and to me the most important stuff you know one is confidence in in the officer's ability to to do the job mm-hmm. and and you know so you know precision shooting that's that's an important skill right that, that's something that if you screw it up it is catastrophic right there's you know and 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 the other thing that i always really tried to incorporate in into our every training uh iteration was was medical right pre-hospital trauma life support training you got to know how to do that and if you screw it up uh, the consequences are, are catastrophic for either you or someone you care about. So, you know, as instructors, we have to make those wise choices based on the finite resources and time and availability of our students and, and, and really focus on, you know, getting them the skill and then improving their confidence in their own skill, because, at the end of the day, they're going to have to go do the problem solving on their own, right? We want to build confident problem solvers uh, that are that are independent operators. We can't have them thinking, you know, what was that dance step that the instructor was talking about? Who cares, man? Right? It's terrain and situationally dependent. Um, is is the action appropriate? Yeah, then go for it, man. You know. Yeah, I think I think you're you're bang on the money on that one and on, i've talked about this in way long ago on episodes um, i don't remember the last time this got brought up but um, i always like doing it because i get a shit on myself um from an instructor perspective um i think that humility component that you talked about where the instructor you know um i had i had uh, one one of the amazing instructors that i had at the very beginning of my career said you're not there to show them what you can do you're there to show them what they can do yes uh, and yes. you know the i made and and where i get where i get to kind of rag on myself a bit is i was at because i became an instructor at a very young age i was a like a, a very competitive martial artist then i got mm-hmm. a dt instructor certification and now i'm sitting there and i'm training i've been i was the organization i was with 
um, I was junior, junior. Like I was like on the, on the totem pole of 150 people, I was like 149. And <laughs> now I'm put in this position because of my competency in the yeah. skill sets. I was put in a position to now teach and I had that, well, let me show you this and this and this and this and this and this. Right. And I thought I was hot shit. And then, you know, one of somebody came to me, they're like, what the fuck are you doing? Right. right. Like, what are you doing? Are you, you're not, they're not learning anything. And, and, you know, and then you come to this realization, like, you know, you could be the, you know, the fastest high speed, low drag motherfucker on the planet. But if your job is to teach somebody and you're not actually instilling that, that learned ability in your student, then you might as well have just gone for coffee because it was the same result. So yeah. the the biggest thing that I learned was that, and it had to be, and so to go back to your, your thoughts on, you know, having that re- prerequisite of, you know, having to go, you had to be a firearms instructor, then you had to be a SWAT operator, that, that length of time, even though it could be taxing and, and, and be um, restrictive for certain people, it yeah. also almost ensures that you have some of that humility built in yes. to yes. those instructors yeah. before yeah. they're put into that position in the first place. So yeah. regardless of it was, uh, you know, I think a benefit to, to an extended period like that is that you have, when, when people come in, it's, it's, it's almost like there's an earned component to that where they like, they feel like, okay, it took me forever to get here. Now I have to treat this with maybe a higher level of respect than, I put yeah. my name in a hat. I got an instructor course and now I have a certificate that says I'm Bob instructor and I get to teach you now. Yeah. 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 No, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I, I hadn't really fully finished uh, my explanation, I guess, of the program. And, and that is exactly the intent, right? So we wanted a program where say the PAI comes in and is literally carrying the bags and setting up the range and, and, and soaking up, all of the uh, experience that they can get just by helping the senior guys, right? So, or, and girls, uh, but the, the, the tactical instructors, and then we actually had a category that was STI, so senior tactical instructor. Uh, and that entailed, you know, certain other certifications. You had to be alert certified, which is a whole, uh, you know, probably an episode we could do. I think alert is an amazing program. Uh, you know, we talked about the hubris of instructors, I was in the first wave of the FBI involvement with the alert program and got notified on a Tuesday, hey, you're going down to San Marcos, Texas to the alert compound, and they're going to teach you how to do active shooter response after the uh, the Newtown shooting, right? The Bureau got heavily involved. And, you know, we're sitting there going, Texas State University? Where, where, where the hell is that? You know, and why are we why are we going to this? this I've never heard of this organization. But we were told, hey, man, get on the bus and or get on the plane and you're going. And so each division sent two guys and with the idea that it would be a train a trainer type of thing. And we were going to augment the alert uh, cadre that was already out there to really push that training. And I'll tell you, man, it was a humbling experience. Those guys at the alert compound in Texas were phenomenal. Some of the best train the trainer um, you know, experience I've ever seen. And, and I, I stole a lot from those guys and I'm still friends with a lot of them. Uh, so yeah, that was a, that was definitely a, a, a moment. Like you said, man, I don't need that. Who are these guys? We're the FBI, you know, blah, blah, blah. They were consummate professionals and, um, you know, 10 plus years down the road, it's been, it's been super rewarding, but, uh, 
you know, from the from that whole programmatic tactical instructor program thing, you know, the idea was that your senior TI or your principal tactical instructor at the field office would sort of be the overarching regional program manager, kind of dictate the training uh, calendar uh, using the TIs and then some of the uh, PAIs, allowing those PAIs to soak up that knowledge and pick up the tricks of the trade and the behind the scenes. Hey, here's how you set up a, a you know force on paper run. Here's how you set up a force on force run. And here there's lots to learn uh, that you that you get better and better and better at just by watching and doing. So I'm excited about where that's going. Um, I'm hoping it really starts to to bear fruit and 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 one extends the service life of that trainer. Uh, as a matter of fact, we ran a PAI course for some state and local partners out in Las Vegas. I got a buddy out there, Chris McKinnis, uh, who runs a great program for the Bureau uh, in the Las Vegas division and ran a course and it was really well received. So, you know, who knows where it goes? Uh, I'm out of the game now, but, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see where those guys uh, can can take it. No, no it's, it's exciting. Um, well, I know where you are. You're going to be part of what we're doing now, and I'm going to be bringing you into what we're doing. Because, like I told you, I want to I want to have the biggest cadre of of world leading experts that I can muster. Um, 100 with what you said about alert, phenomenal organization. Um, I had the opportunity to sit down with Marty Adcock. Um, good, at good last year. Yeah, Marty's, uh, Marty's great. Hell of a dude. Um, he still has a better beard than me, which is chaps oh, yeah, my ass. But it's hard hard to beat. <laughs> it is what it is. Um, but yeah, we've had lots of, you know, alert instructors, uh, Morgan Ballas, we've had, uh, Robert Carlson guys that, you know, whether they're, um, adjunct instructors or, or mm-hmm. staff instructors there, um, they're phenomenal, um, great organization. Mm-hmm. Can't say enough about them. So happy to plug them. Um, before we, uh, I think there's going to be, I, I literally have notes and there's a bunch of concepts that I want to dig in and talk to you about. So I think we're probably going to have to shelve those for now. Um, yeah, I want to just briefly bring up you since you've retired um mm-hmm. you started um hold fast security group um and so mm-hmm. i want to give you just a, i just want to talk about that for a second because one of the things that obviously is happening a lot right now is we have there's a lot of super high level individuals like yourself um that were either uh, instructors trainers or subject matter experts or operators that are going out kind of on their own now and and developing companies and kind of giving back to the community in in another way um giving back to the law enforcement community but also other other groups right so um what's Holdfast all about and, and what do you guys do so we are a uh, group of retired fbi tactical instructors so that's the the prime requisite is everybody in the in the company are retired uh or soon to be retired We're, we got a you know obviously some buddies that are coming off the uh, uh off the team and coming on to ours here hopefully in the near future and uh, so everybody in the company are has a common background, common skill set. And, you know, one of the prime reasons I wanted to, to start this was I didn't want to stop working with these these people that I loved working with. You know, the, the, you'll hear it a lot. The best part about the FBI and a lot of organizations, I would guess. But I know it's true about the Bureau. The best part about the Bureau, are the people you work with. And it made me sick to my stomach to think. I'm not going to see these dudes again, right? Other than at reunions. And I didn't want that. So we talked about for a couple of years, hey, can we do something? Uh, is there an interest, you know, is the public, can you make money doing this? 
uh, on the private sector. And, and probably the, the watershed moment for me uh, was the, 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 Charles, the, the Charleston Church massacre at, at Mother Emanuel Church down in Charleston several years ago. My team responded to that. Um, I was there shortly after the shooting, and it, it was in in 28 years of law enforcement the most heartbreaking crime scene I've ever seen, uh, because it was so apparent that the people in that basement were completely um, just overwhelmed by what was happening. They had clearly not given any thought to, Hey, this could happen. What would I do? You know, if, and, you know, a big part of what we do with the FBI is, you know, draw out lessons learned right from tragedies at BAU behavioral analysis unit. There's a whole unit that does nothing but study active shooter stuff. And, and we really were involved as an agency in educating the public and law enforcement. That was part of the alert program. You know, what can the Bureau do to help stem the tide of this? And so I got really involved in that and following the Mother Emanuel attack, my boss, the SAC in Columbia at the time, asked me to do a just develop a presentation for houses of worship specifically. Right. In South Carolina is a very religious state. People were scared uh, to go to church. So within a couple of weeks, uh, one, I first called Quantico and headquarters to see if we had something on the shelf. We didn't. Uh, so I made one up, right? I, I designed a presentation. I did it in my little town here in South Carolina. I wasn't expecting much of a turnout. I went to my priest and asked him, to, hey, can you kind of spread the word? Anybody's invited, but I don't want to advertise it. And with no advertisement and very little lead up time, I walked into the sanctuary and there was 1,500 people there. Uh, so the, the it, it struck me, one, there's an extreme amount of concern out there of what's going on. And I just want information, right? This was not a scare tactic. This is my, my philosophy uh, in terms of training civilians is I just need to give you unvarnished fact so that you can then make an informed decision, right? You know, if you want to come out and do some uh, weapons training and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we do that too. But the bread and butter is most people are walking around, you know, with no real appreciation for what's happening out there, you know, in a real sense, uh, such that, you know, law enforcement response times are significantly increasing. Uh, violent crime is up significantly in a lot of places. Uh, so, you know, as a result, people are going to be on their own for longer than they think. And you have to have factored that into what am I going to do for my personal security plan uh, in the meantime until the cavalry arrives? And then, of course, once the cavalry arrives, right, once the police show up, it's a, still a very dangerous, chaotic situation, which a lot of people also haven't thought about. So we wanted to start this company, one, to kind of share all the, you know, experience and lessons and and th that we have gleaned over the years and you know, uh, had the, the great fortune to be able to attend all this training and do all these things. I felt selfish taking it into retirement uh, and not sharing it. So we figured we'd start the company uh, to basically help uh, organizations, private individuals, whoever, uh, houses of worship, 
understand what they can do to keep themselves safer. A lot of it is just a conversation, um, you know, a guided conversation with, with some facts. And, you know, we, we, I was, like I said, I was part of the protection details for, for a lot of years and we incorporate some of the techniques, nothing, nothing ninja like, but, but, you know, just some, uh, common sense stuff that maybe isn't necessarily common sense, uh, so that people can have thought about what they would do in the event of a critical situation. We also have these, you know, uh, weekend training events where people who want to take it sort of to the next level come and train with, you know, former members of the hostage rescue team. And, uh, you know, we do it the Bureau way. Everything we do is based on, uh, you know, the, the equipment, the techniques, everything is what we learned and how we did it uh, to keep our men and women safe when we were working for the FBI. Uh, we are now translating that to our clients in, in the private sector. So it's been a lot of fun so far. You know, it's, I never thought I'd be a businessman. I'm, I'm sincerely regretting my political science degree. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I studied something more effective, but something. Uh, yeah. Yeah. God, this, this, uh, <laughs> ancient Greek history training really did me solid. Or, uh, yeah. It was yeah. a lot of fun and it was pretty easy. A, it got me where I wanted to be, but that's now right. I wish I'd, I'd, yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's well, it. I, I appreciate what you're doing. I, I'm super glad that you guys stood something up and you're you're continuing to pass that information on. Um, I know you and I have talked about this all, offline, but you know I'm going to be bringing you back, not just for more podcasts and stuff, but we're going to get you and your boys involved with uh, with some of the training that we're developing here and, and, and really pushing a lot of that knowledge forward, I think is super important. So looking forward to working with you on that. Um, any last thoughts that you have for uh, anybody watching or listening to this right now from the, you know, advice for current law enforcement or, or anything like that? Like, what are your thoughts on what's happening right now? You know, I, one, just just deep gratitude for the men and women that are continuing to do the job, you know, and, and I don't I don't want to sound hokey or I mean, I mean, my hat is off and my heart is full of gratitude for those people that are continuing to, you know, push the cruisers and 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 keep us safe because it is a obviously uh, dangerous. It always has been dangerous, and now just a particularly uh, uh, dangerous time. So thank you to those uh, men and women that are just you know on the front lines, and then those those people that are that are training them. Uh, just keep in mind, man. You know, it is your job to make them better. Uh, the 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 days of the gotcha instructor and the, the guy that's you know going to beat his chest and, and embarrass people and send them home crying that has to be over with right a, a professional instructor is someone who you know people look forward to going to training because they're going to come out with a higher sense of self-esteem a sense of hey you know what that helped it, training is training time is so finite and so precious especially in law enforcement we, we as stewards of that program have to be uh, super, super careful with, with how we spend that uh, for, on behalf of our students, right? So, you know, just, just be organized, be diligent, be, be respectful of that very finite amount of time that we do have to, you know, make our uh, brothers and sisters, uh, you know, effective problem solvers. That's, that's the bottom line. Well, I appreciate it, dude. And I appreciate you and I appreciate you coming on here and I look forward to working with you in the near future. So stay safe and uh, we'll talk. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It was really a pleasure. Absolutely, brother.
Join the ILET network now. Go to ILET.network. That's ILET.network. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.